Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and an incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter promo code BSPN at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, you should. Channel 33 is also brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and our favorite way to buy and sell tickets to sporting events, concerts, and whatever else you want to go to. With the SeatGeek mobile app, you can quickly and easily buy tickets with just two taps and have your tickets delivered straight to your phone to enter the event. If you can't make the event, SeatGeek now lets you transfer your tickets to your friends or post tickets for sale, all from your phone. As a special for Channel 33 listeners, SeatGeek is offering $20 back off your first purchase with the code BSPN. To get $20 back off your first SeatGeek purchase, download the SeatGeek app today and enter promo code BSPN. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan and on the other line, he's got golden ears, a silver tongue and brass balls. It's Andy Greenwald. They call that the Olympic podium of cliches. That's the, the, the triple frontier of um, record industry, man. What's up, Andy? Chris, listen, I got to start this way. You know, we had, a, we had a lot of fun out in the warm weather you had out there in Los Angeles last week. We recorded two shows. Um, most of them were about Kanye West, and this one is going to be a little bit about Kanye West, too. We're going we're to put it at the end because there's a thanks to everyone who's been indulging us. We have a lot of TV talk. But I just want to say to you, it was freezing here over the weekend, and we got a little bit of snow, but not as much snow as there was to be found on Martin Scorsese's vinyl. You know, I, I was a little surprised to find cocaine in a Martin Scorsese show, uh, but there it was. It was weird. It was weird. You know, and again, I thought the addition of um, Italian-American gangsters, the sort of overriding <laughs> dynamic about how men have trouble negotiating home life with business interests. Like, this was kind of left field turn for my man, Marty. It was uh, real quick, we are going to talk, obviously, about Vinyl, which is HBO's new drama on Sunday nights. We're going to talk a little bit about the return of Better Call Saul to AMC. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Louis C.K.'s Direct to the People show, Horace and Pete. And we'll wrap it up with a little bit of Life of Pablo recapping. Finally reading an obituary for Doug from Title, who <laughs> sadly... <laughs> Leapt, leapt off Yo. a cliff in Rhode Island somewhere. Um, but, Andy, let's start with vinyl. Um, two hours of pure uh, adrenaline. That's a lot of TV, man. I got to say, like, uh, we, I, it seems like we're coming off on a negative foot, and I don't think that's what we intend to do here. But I have to say, I don't mind the uh, snappy pilot. I don't mind, like, you know, a crisp 42 minutes. Like, yeah. Get in, get out. This was long, and it was. Ask, I felt like it was asking a lot of us in a lot of ways. It was not a. I, I actually watched it chopped up into two segments, which may have affected my my viewing. But, <laughs> two two, two rails, know, but, maybe <laughs> you chopped it up into two rails. Two, two medium sized lines for myself to yeah, get through. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel like the best way to come into this is to say it, it seems like either of us were particularly surprised by the show because in many ways we knew what the show was from the minute it was announced, and there, were, there wasn't that much in this that was that came as a surprise, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But were you, I mean, were you sitting there on your couch like Nicolas Cage and bringing out the dead? Still, I'm sure, your favorite Martin Scorsese picture. <laughs> was that like, were, 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 were you just were you chasing the dragon on the show? Where were you? Um. Okay, so 
the 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 subject matter of the show is made for me. I'm fascinated by 70s New York and the cultural explosion that came out of that city at that time. I'm interested I'm deeply interested in the music industry and the history of the music industry and the machinations of the music industry and that's um I I love Martin Scorsese movies. So all the stuff is right there for, for us to love it. I liked it. I did not love it and I know that Pete there it has gotten some heat because I think that um, vinyl is a show that is put into a world like six years ago if vinyl comes out I think people are much more excited about it uh, than, it than, than they are now just the feeling of the when he's doing the voiceover in the beginning of the show and he's sort of really laying out like I am an unreliable narrator and a difficult genius I think that that kind of um, has just become so rote for a lot of people and people are so familiar yeah. with that voice of their of a, of a narrator and as a protagonist that it has an uphill uh battle to, to fight despite the fact that they have such great photography and great sets and great sense of time and place i feel like the the fact that it's a show about another difficult man makes it a little bit you know samey to a lot of what we've had on television for the last couple of years it's an interesting thing to think about because it definitely feels in its um in its reach, and its point of view, very, very familiar for TV, but it's kind of maybe worth just taking a moment here to say that, in a way, Scorsese invented television anti-hero, right? I mean, because all the things that we're talking about as being very rote for television are kind of, and we joke about this on in the intro, but this is what Scorsese's always done. And you can draw a pretty clear line from the, the protagonist of, you know, the, the classic Scorsese movies, whether they're mm-hmm. Taxi Driver or, um, you, know, you know, certainly Goodfellas, Raging Bull, to not just the shows that he directly influenced, like The Sopranos, but um, uh, Breaking Bad, Mad Men. I mean, that, that's the type of character that he liked to write. You know, yeah, I mean, a, and a, this a, is... A man at war with himself, out of step with the time. And Richie is very much like, what if Henry Hill was starring in After Hours? I think that, um, you know, it's funny that you mention After Hours, because I don't mean to be all Slate.com about it, but one of the things that struck me about the show was I wish that it had the, I don't know whether it's the, the patience or the curiosity or the interest to keep pushing. And what I mean is, obviously, drugs are a huge part of the show. Obviously, um, paranoia and guilt are a huge part of the show, and they're a huge part of the pilot. But walking into Andrew Dice Clay on a two-day bender yeah. ought to feel creepier than it did, you know, because it, honestly, maybe this was the TV of it, or maybe this was our expectations of the rhythm of these types of shows, but despite it being a little disorienting when he walked in, ultimately he was just, you know, that performance was more or less repeating the My Comedian's Youth speech for three reverse set pieces. And by the way, I am all in on the Dice Man's late career reinvention. It's a pretty <laughs> interesting actor. Okay, he was the best thing in Woody Allen's Blue Jasmine. Sorry, um, sorry, Kate Blanchett, but he was great in this pilot, that too. That is slanderous. Um, <laughs> what a slanderous know, take know, to say the... that Andrew Dice Clay was better than Kate Blanchett and Blue Jasmine. Do you actually she believe was, that? Listen, our listeners, I do, and our listeners know that this is a safe space for outrageous opinions. This is what we're known for. This is, it is the hottest, you know, this is, it is the, 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 the supernova temperature take on late period Woody Allen that keeps our listeners coming back to the watch week after week. Um, but to bring it all the way back, After Hours is, I think, Scorsese's best drug film because it is so deeply disturbing. It is, you, you don't know any—it it, it, it creates a paranoia 
that is completely unfamiliar, unreliable, and the movie is itself a jittery hangover, you know? And I kind of want some of the, the I wish we could take those stylistic storytelling chances in the show, but again, you know, he, he directs the pilot and he steps back, and Terrence Winter, who is going to run the show and also ran um, Boardwalk Empire, I think has a lot of talent and a lot of talent, but pushing past the wall, pushing past the frames, the frame and walls of the house that Scorsese built for him do not seem to be among them. Yeah, well, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit here is just the, and we've brought this up on the show a couple of times over the last 18 months, basically from True Detective season one through the Nick and the idea of directors, you know, more visually accomplished directors and more visually distinctive directors getting involved in television and to what extent television remains a writer's medium. And this, I think that one of the tensions you could feel in vinyl was a, you know, the 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 pull of a Martin Scorsese film and the push of this needs to set up all of our characters and all of our conflicts. Yeah. And so Scorsese, you could tell, had wanted to try and capture what music, or what role music can play in a person's life. So that's why probably the best single moment in the entire pilot, and it's a pretty high moment, is when... Uh, Bobby Cannavale and Ray Romano are talking about um, Blackboard Jungle, and they talk about the 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 snare clap, right? And that's that feeling where you you can Scorsese is so good at identifying how popular culture can give somebody a sense of their own personality or can shape someone's personality. But then at the same time, and there are a few things I just want to jump in to say there are a few things that are as um, thrilling in um, in movies or TV or in life when characters suddenly develop shorthand or speak the same language or speak the same code. You know, when they suddenly realize that they, I mean, these are best friends in the, um, in, in the world of the show, but when we watch them and we're like, oh, they speak the same language, they're, 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 they're tuned into the same cultural frequency. It's yeah. kind of exciting in the same way it is when you meet someone who likes the same stuff that you do. Yeah, exactly. And that those guys are already sort of out of touch with what's going on i mean the the artists that they have now i mean that's sort of the cool thing it's an interesting choice because this isn't a, a label that's at the cutting edge of music today this is a label that's largely falling away right like they're making they haven't found a new artist they're passing on abba you know i mean richie comes in and he hears abba and he's like they're going to be selling stadiums in two years but everybody there is eating deli sandwiches and just being like look at these swedish people like what whatever and it's interesting to find them, you know, at what was a really transitional period for music anyway. I mean, it's the end of Ziggy Stardust. Slade is really big. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance to music. Zeppelin is obviously um, the the sort of huge, biggest band in the world. And then there's this sound coming from the streets that Richie, by the end of by the end of the pilot, f- becomes so connected with that he is literally. Uh, underneath the streets when it's over you know and uh yeah so it's it's there are parts of it that made me really really excited and i i do wonder whether or not with something like this if one of its calling cards which is martin scorsese presents is actually it's going to get better once martin scorsese is out of the way i'm glad you mentioned a lot of the points you just did because here here's my my the number one um if i could make a critique of the show which i think i'm going to take that right um, and, and, and you know what, it's not even fair to call it a critique, it's really more, it's, I'm, I'm sort of puzzled by it, which is to say, this is a show about one of the most exciting eras in American culture, 
um, and about certainly, I think, New York City, the, mo- the most exciting city in the country, at one of its m- most fraught transitional moments. Um, as you said, it's a moment when an older era basically died ugly and gave birth violently to a whole new world. Right. And the strange thing to me is the decision to make it such an old person's show, which in and of itself makes it an old person's show. And what I mean is, so much of TV is laying down the stakes and the fence and like, okay, you could do anything, but here's what we're going to do. So it's not Matt Weiner saying, I want to make a show about the 60s. They're saying, I want to make a show about the advertising industry. It's, I want to make a show about these people in this, literally in this room. And through that prism, I will be able to tell all the stories I want to tell. Right. And, you know, last year when we were talking about Halt and Catch Fire and AMC, I was saying the mistake between the first and the, the mistake they made in the first season and corrected in the second was picking the right world but the wrong, the wrong uh, lens through which to shoot it. And then they corrected that in the second season. Um, to look at that exciting time in American history and in um, the history of, of culture and the history of rock and roll and be like, yeah, I think the 45-year-old businessman is the way to go. Yeah, right. As opposed to that Jamie, who's Juno Jamie. Temple's character, finding basically the next version of the Stooges at the, the Coventry Club or the Mercer Arts Center or wherever she first sees them. That's that's exactly what that you're exactly right. Like what why why go with a person who has already had their moment in the sun trying to regain their crown when you could have a younger person who is trying to convince these older people that there is a new sound out there. And business the, the music business it's always been dirty and gross and, and kind of lame. I mean that's just the people who, who the people who write the check that's that's what it becomes. That's not that interesting. Now it gives you potentially access to the criminal element that generally fuels television drama and certainly fuels Scorsese's best work. Right. So that's a reason to, to have it there. But honestly, what it what it does is it allows the people who made it, and I, I would assume the target audience, to feel flattered, which is to say, even in 73, um, Bobby Cannavale and Ray Romano's character, and by the way, Ray Romano, my favorite performer in the whole thing, he is, I, shouts to Romano. He's good. Everybody does love Raymond now. Yeah. This dude had basically had Seinfeld money coming off of the sitcom, and then was like, I think I just want to see if I can be an actor now. Right, and he's done you know, Parenthood. Good on of a certain yeah. age. He was good on Parenthood. Really good on the show, and, and has a sort of unique aspect. I really like watching him. Um, but the thing that the show allows, the thing that they bought themselves with this, this framework is that it allows Cannavale and Romano to be like, to, to come into the show with a firm point of view as to what's good and what isn't. Basically be like, you know, this kind of music, um, you know, whether it was classic rhythm and blues, classic rhythm and blues, or jazz, or pure quote unquote pure rock and roll with good, abba, bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it allows them to come into it with a with an older person's yeah. binary of music, as opposed to a pure excitement of the people like Juno Temple's character, who probably haven't quite gotten burned yet. Um, that's saying something about who's making the show and something about who I think they intend to watch it, um, especially considering there are so many more interesting avenues in. Um, I mean, you can see season yeah, four I, I of the show awesome. coming with the invention of hip hop. You know what I mean? Like, you, you just the fact that he well, went. He, 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 he Forrest he, he Gumped hip hop in yeah. the first episode. That was that was the one thing I was super out on. Um, there's a scene in this sh- show, the first episode, where um, it's a perfect example of like I, I think you could call it like Scorsese and the immoral cool. You know, where basically something deeply immoral is happening, and because of the way Scorsese films it and presents it, it feels really cool. And in this one, it's uh, Richie's speech about 
uh, recoupable costs for artists when the po- guys from Polygram were like, yeah. you don't make any money. And he's like, technically, you are right. <laughs> but really, we always make money yeah. because we basically bill everything against the artist's earnings. So even if they sell a million records, they don't actually make a million dollars. That million dollars is owed back to the company for everything that we've paid for. And usually what happens is these scenes involve a lot of whip pans and something from side D of Exile on Main Street playing. And this happens in Wolf of Wall Street. And this happens of Goodfellas where they're just nobody can find the um the cocaine lining of of like a really terrible act like scorsese and it was interesting though because like as a as a growing up like those are some of the my favorite moments in all of movies you know what i mean like watching henry hill explain how they would uh rob people or like run bookies or or even how they robbed um uh, Idlewild Airport or whatever it was before it was LaGuardia like or JFK those are like like these iconic scenes in my mind and then what was weird watching it last night because I was just like these guys are just talking about absolutely screwing other people out of like their dreams maybe it's because like yeah. I just we know so many we've well, seen so many artists you come never, up and you just, never worked at a, you never worked at an airline yet we knew people who worked in who, who try to make a living as right a exactly i mean we know the like the the stories of guys who are like on their like they owe a record label five more albums and like the label refuses to put anything they do out or or whatever i mean i i i do think that obviously we're meant to consider richie not only a unreliable narrator but also a not a particularly uh good person it's not like i'm confused about that um I wonder how much of the show is going to be about his salvation and how much of it will be about his downfall or if they're just going to exist in, in the middle. I'm, I, the, I guess the, this is a long way of saying that obviously this show touched on so much stuff that I'm interested in that I'm going to continue to watch it. And, and, I'm, I, and I do think there's a lot of really cool stuff like Ray Romano. I am interested in Olivia Wilde's Andy Warhol background. Yeah. I'm interested I- in the – invention of punk but also going back and finding out what happened to lester grimes it's there's a lot of stuff going on yeah it, it's the olivia wilde thing you know i, I think anyone who, who saw drinking buddies which is a movie i really loved yeah. years ago yeah, yeah. thinks that olivia wilde is a much more interesting actor than you would have previously considered possibly and it just bums me obviously the, the warhol stuff is is you know that's that, that's telegraphing where we're headed and that's a good thing but to to start at the same place, to start at the at the you know at the Mad Men Betty Draper place, where it's like, well, let's let's make the co-lead the wife who's at home being like, don't you dare drink. But I like, thought that that was an above, that like is, that was a, like that was a pretty good scene though. I thought the way that she talked to him that was a good scene. And and similarly, Cannavale, he's such an interesting actor that dude. Like you know, people describe some actors as um, you know they're like heady actors. Yeah. So they, um, this dude is all muscle, like all muscle and sinew. I don't even mean like his physicality. I just mean everything. He makes he makes a full uh, paleo meal out of every line of dialogue. Yeah. And sometimes, like on Boardwalk Empire, I thought his meter was turned up too high. He was having fun, and the show itself wasn't having fun, and so there was kind of a disconnect. He sells every part of this. I, I, again, I can't imagine if they had cast that part differently, like would I have even been interested in any of it? You know, like, would um, would he have any sympathy at all for this character or even interest in him? Since, he's, as you said, he's just screwing people over left and right. Um, yeah, so just, just as a, but just as a final note, um, and then I want to ask you one question, then we'll move on. Um, we mentioned Mad Men before. I thought it was interesting to think about the fact that, you know, Mad Men obviously set an almost impossibly high bar for period pieces on TV. Mm-hmm. 
But one of the things, underrated things, I think, that made it so good is that Weiner wasn't alive as an adult in that period. He's writing about a world that he never experienced, right, but maybe he knew about his parents. And, and because of that, he was always trying to answer a question he had now about maybe his, maybe his dad, I don't know, or maybe the people that he knew or his parents knew, or sure. the world that birthed him that he, never had, he was never in touch with. I think the contrast here with vinyl is that um, Mick Jagger and Martin Scorsese, not only were they alive in this period, this was their heyday. So it becomes almost, even if they tried to do otherwise, it, it, it almost necessarily becomes an act of nostalgia, of recreation, right? Of like, oh no, the Mercer Arts Center looked like this, and people spoke like this. And, and, and I feel like that's, that's an interesting distinction, because I don't know if you can make great art when you're trying to recreate something. Yeah, it's funny. The, it's, there's a moment in the show where, where uh, Jamie, Juno Temple's character, I think she says she's telling Richie about going to see the Nasty Bits, and she was like, they were killing it. And I was like, did people say they were killing it yeah. back then? Like, I feel like people only started saying that like five years ago. Um, maybe they did, but it was like a weird moment where I couldn't tell whether that was like a line that was thrown in from the writer's room to kind of keep it, keep it of, of like give people of a, a, like a, a window into it from a contemporary perspective. But what you're saying about being, I, I would, I, I would push back on that. I thought the one where, you know, Gina Temple, the guy who liked her in the A&R department. Yeah. Clark. I thought the only forced line was when he was like, bro, did you see the picture of pizza rat? I put on Snapchat this morning. <laughs> I thought that one was kind of a He's like, dude, did you see what title did with Life of Pablo? But your your point <laughs> yeah, is, I like your point about whether, you know, these guys are making a, a, a show about when they were, a, a time that they lived through. One thing that's really interesting about as they get closer and closer to the invention of punk rock is that that's where you really start to see a schism from interlocutors and people who really live it. You know, punk rock was very much an ethos and it was a lifestyle and people were living in these flop houses on St. Mark's and people were living basically hand to mouth and playing shows that were, you know, attended by guy, you know, like getting bottles thrown at them. And I don't, Mick Jagger wasn't dealing with that because, because Mick Jagger and Martin Scorsese were not probably really shooting with people in the gym when they were like doing heroin in, on St. Mark's, you know, in, in tenement buildings in Alphabet City. Oh, you mean something. the next generation? Yeah, or just, I mean, I, I think that they, we're in this weird transition in terms of 1973 from like glam and arena rock when it starts to get to a little bit more of a street level kind of sound. I'll be, I'll be fascinated to see what they decide to do with it. Before we go on, Andy, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor today. It's Squarespace. Now, building a website can be tough, and even if you know your way around coding, creating something that looks good and works well is a time-consuming affair. And whether it's for a business site, a portfolio, a restaurant, or whatever else, in this day and age, you probably need one anyway. Well, lucky for us, Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. Squarespace provides simple, powerful, and beautiful websites that look professionally designed regardless of skill level. No coding required. Not only does Squarespace provide you with intuitive and easy-to-use tools to create your website with, Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. And you know you can trust in Squarespace for your website needs when millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world trust them too. Just think about Joe House from Friday Rolling Podcast. He has a Squarespace website. Seriously, you can't beat the ease and simplicity of Squarespace. Squarespace gives you 24-7 online support and a beautiful website. So what are you waiting for? Start, start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code BSPN to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Channel 33. We thank Squarespace for the support of Channel 33. Squarespace, you should. Uh, one thing that, so we've been talking about, 
this idea of of you know the the cinematic influence on this show and obviously like having somebody like Scorsese direct it and it, it does feel like a Martin Scorsese movie for for better and for worse. But the other show we wanted to talk about this week, Horace and Pete, is a decidedly decidedly an act of the televisual arts. But I kind of wanted to jump into it from just in terms of the continuity thing. This show is super old, too. Yeah. You know, and I yeah. thought, just in terms of the sensibility, and frankly, it's interested in engaging with anything even remotely modern. Um, in, in that, it actually made for a, a I, I thought, a, a pretty simpatico combo review final. Yeah. So we're talking about Horace and Pete, which Louis C.K. sort of surprised everybody with about two weeks ago. By putting up on his website for five bucks, you could just download uh, an episode. Each episode will come with a certain price tag. I think one's three dollars, then another one's like four or five bucks again. He's put out a couple. Uh, I've seen the first one. Andy's seen the first one. We haven't gotten to the future, the 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 ones after that. But you know, it's a Cheers style multicam uh, sitcom shot on basically one set, and it's sort of a hybrid between like a piece of theater and an old school. Tele- it's almost like a television play, like the kind they used to have at the invention of television, yeah. at the at the outset of television. Um, what did you think of this? What did you think of this show? I, I do want to preface it by saying people are people. Are, I've, I've heard chatter that the third episode features an amazing performance by Laurie Metcalf, who's a, you know a terrific actor, and so I, 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 I I'm interested in that, and I maybe would color my opinion. But the thought of getting through another hour to get to that one seems almost impossible. Yeah. I found it really, really, really a tough hang. Um, it, you know, let me, let me go macro just to say that, like, one of the reasons why I really, really like and admire and respect Louis C.K. as a, just even within the world of TV, is that he is chasing his own muse, and sometimes that chase is to the detriment of the audience, and he doesn't care. And then he runs in a different direction, and I'm with him. There is no show that is as um, confounding as Louis, and there is no show that that is as unpredictable as Louis. And there's often, there aren't as many shows that can be as rewarding, but you sort of have to be willing to take the wheat, the chaff with the wheat, you know? And so when, when if, if, you know, if he did an interview and he was like, well, I wanted to do this myself because no one would fund it, you kind of want to be like, no shit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, like there's, there's a pretty strong reason for that. Mark um, Zuckerberg, <laughs> fund my multicam sitcom. About racist-ass Brooklynites. Seriously, though, like, what if, what if, what if Kanye like got Zuckerberg on the phone and was like, "Here's what I want," and they're like, "He's like Kanye, I want to give you what you want, whatever you want. That's what I'm here for." He's like, "It's really what I want most." And he's like Kanye, I am your dude. I have the open checkbook. I have a, I have a bitch in my hand. What can I write it out for? What am I funding? And he's like, "I just have always wanted to see Alan Alda say the C word." Yeah, and he's like, "Done." Two words: like, racist cheers. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of amazing watching these really good actors just kind of feel their way through the intense strangeness of the atmosphere. And when I say the atmosphere, it's because it's essentially, as you said, it's, it's shot like a sitcom. Yeah. But there's no laugh track and there's no music. So it's a, it's a play, but it's a play without an audience. So you do these lines, some of them are funny, some of them are not. Some of them are, you know, weirdly like Pizza Rat on Snapchat, where they're referencing. Yeah, right. Where he's like, "What do you like, think about the Super Bowl that's coming up?" Now, exactly. So it, it, it's so odd, um, but if you look at it as experiments, 
it suddenly becomes, in my mind, it does suddenly become valid because it's like, well, what we're calling it TV. We have all these different delivery streams. We have all this different talent. We have access to all these different, you know, audiences and, and just ways to get the art in front of people. This is what he wants to do with it. And no one's really done it like this before. Yeah, I don't, it's, it's not quite dramatic enough to be moving in that way and it's certainly not very funny so I, I i guess it's supposed to be a slice of humanity but i it felt like a, a a stage full of straw men i mean every single person was sort of there to be like here's what somebody who was voting for trump might say you know and here's what a really nasty drunk woman at the end of the bar might say but it's like none of the characters actually felt very real to me with the exception of horace and pete yeah it, 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 it's a good point i mean there's there's nothing inherently insightful about quote-unquote honesty right you know if you, if you just if you just sort of have all these people um open themselves up and just reveal who they are and you know there's that stuff in the first episode where uh ad brian is there and jessica lang is like well you're fat and alan all was like don't don't be upset about it and we I had a cousin once she was a nice fat girl and it's like oh it's shocking and they're being mean but they're kind of being real and we're dealing with this except we're not everyone's just sort of putting something on the table and looking at it right. and it's not there's there's no extra layer to it and you know in fact some of what i'm saying criticizing that sensibility has trickled through louis through many episodes of louis but what he often brings to louis is a kind of um, formalist inventiveness you know in where he will he will play with uh, filmmaking styles and cutting and editing and and that changes the material. All of which is to say, though, this isn't, maybe this is the main takeaway from, from the show in general. Louis C.K. is a next-level, omega-sized genius at one thing in particular, which is stand-up comedy, which, to my mind, is probably the best vehicle for the kind of radical honesty and um, social critiquing that he wants so desperately to do. So I love that he's in a position where he can try his talents at other things and try to bring that same sensibility to other styles of storytelling, but, you know, I hate being like clown, dance, and be funny. Yeah, right. No, he certainly still does that. He does a stand-up show. It's just that this is not nearly as rewarding. But it's, well, it's, on the one hand, you're like, I don't want to be like clown. Go ahead and be funny. And on the other hand, I don't want to just be like Louis C.K., the all-time genius, has done it again by releasing like a not quite funny sitcom that's not a sitcom. And anyway, I think that there's yeah. a little bit where this is not a dissimilar to what I was saying about vinyl, which is if this had happened a few years ago, I would think, oh wow, Louis C.K. is really upending all of our. Uh, the expectations you have about a, a multi-camera sitcom by taking away the laughter and what's there if you take away the laughter. And there is a little bit of like, um, what if she was white to it? Like, it was like, what if there was no laughter? You know, it's like, it's kind of like... That's, that's your dude. You're good at being that dude. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, didn't, I just didn't really, didn't really connect with me. And, and, and I guess it's just sort of difficult. Like you're saying, it's like, Two hours of vinyl. It's like a lot of hours of Louis there. It's like there's a lot. That it, there's a lot of demands on your your eyeballs. Let me make that point though. Um, we often come at it that way, being like, "Well, there's just so much TV, and there's so much um, stylistically, and in terms of voice." But let's think about the let's think about it from a different perspective, which is to say, I don't know if you could find two shows with more extreme, extremely opposite. Uh, overhead, yeah, and investment. Vinyl has been in the works for probably close to ten years from the various people involved. You know, from the moment that like 
the Mick Jagger, like, you know, put down his glass of rosé in Ibiza, or he's on Ibiza. <laughs> they could, like, do me a show. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and it was just like, yeah, yeah, let's, uh, let's walk it out. And uh, so when they actually did this, and just, the, you know, the tens of millions of dollars that HBO spent on, you know, getting every detail right and that enormous cast and having everything look so furnished and good, the Louis C.K. probably, like, on December 2nd being, like, Oh, Steve Buscemi's number is burning a hole in my iPhone. Like, yeah, let's right. do something with it. Right. Um, so when you think about that, I mean, who, you can make the case who's making better use of the pipes that we have today for delivery systems. I don't know. But um, the takeaway for both is, as it always is, man, it's really hard to make something great that connects with everyone. Absolutely. It's really hard. You're right. It, it is really hard to, to sort of be great at this thing. And, and one group of people who are going to try and continue to be great is the crowd over at Better Call Saul. They have a new uh, season starting this evening. It's Monday, so it's coming out Monday night uh, up against the Grammys. So alternative programming there for you. But, Andy, I, don't, I haven't seen the new season at all yet. Have you checked it out? Uh, what can people expect? Yeah, I've watched the first two. Uh, I think people who like the first season can expect to keep liking this show. I mean, one of the things that we really loved last year was how just a pleasurable and quality and dependable Better Call Saul was, even in this, I think it was only eight episode run. I think we had a lot of, like everyone, we had a lot of skepticism about the validity of the project or how they could keep this thing going or even why they were doing it. But pretty quickly, it proved itself to be one of the more nimble shows on TV in terms of being able to switch from you know, action to drama to comedy. And it's just, you know, I, I, I watch it now, and, and it, it was worth noting before we recorded, both of us were like, did it stick with us? Now, obviously, it was a year ago. It's, I think the first season premiered in January. So that's a long gap yeah. between seasons. But it definitely didn't, like, other than the You Broke My Boy part from the Mike episode, and very little about the show, like, penetrated to the core of us. I don't think we, 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 we spent a lot of nights in September just missing our gang in Albuquerque. But I don't want to underrate that. You know, I don't want to sell that short, because the thing about the show is it's so expertly made. You turn on an hour of Better Call Saul, and you're like, I'm in good hands. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen, but I like these people, and I like where they're taking me. And more importantly, I trust them. And, you know, for, for as much as we talk about, like, demographics or, or like, burnished resumes or strong cast, establish trust. I mean, it's like TV is becoming a door-to-door salesman or something. Like, how do you actually yeah. get an adorable brand loyalty face or someone you trust? Brand loyalty. And so all I'll say is, you know, I, I think that last season ended, people don't remember, um, with uh, Jimmy getting a big nudge towards Fullness. Yeah. Um, you remember there was the episode where he went back to Chicago and recreated the Slip and Jimmy persona. And there was the sense that even though he brought in this big case, that he was he was now headed directly towards the American flag office. Um, the, my main takeaway from the season premiere tonight, or you know, or last night, depending on when, when you're listening to our show, was that they, they Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould pumped the brakes a little bit. Right. Because they realized um, they maybe had like and, a really good show on their hands. Right. And maybe we don't need to just like turn this into a glorified like how did we get from A to B show? Yeah. Maybe when, when is the soon as possible we could have Aaron Paul join us, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, I I, I think that part of that re- that soft reset happens in the parts of the fans' minds too. I remember when Bitter Call Saul came on, my sort of concern or one of the reasons why I maybe wasn't dying for it to happen was that I couldn't really see where the show would go other than to the beginning of Breaking Bad. You yeah, know, I didn't know where the where the end point for that show would be, and if your entire thing is just building up to a thing that people already love, that's a that's a difficult road to hoe. the The accordion sort of like 
uh, of time of chronology really does affect this show. It's like how how much are they going to stretch out or squeeze events to go towards this endpoint or or sort of slow like you're saying pump the brakes. And it, weirdly, like with the second season, I'm already back to like, so what is the show about again? Are we just re- this is just going up to the point where like he meets Gus, right? Like, and, and in my, I know that as soon as we get to episode three of the show, I'll be like, I don't care. I really like this world. I really like these supporting characters. I love Rhea Seahorn. I love like all these people who are in the show. But in from 30,000 feet up, when you're just thinking about it, it does seem sort of like, do we, what is the show doing again? What if I were to tell you that Ed Begley Jr. joins the cast this year? Are you more in? <laughs> sure, I love Begley. I, yeah, but let's talk. Let's let's then let's just say this: that you know the the things that we that we eat praise on Vince Gilligan for, and, and Peter Gould, as co-creator, was on Breaking Bad as well. The sort of immaculate planning, or at least it, we, it, we the real trick of Breaking Bad was that we all walked away from it being like, boy, they planned that perfectly. When in fact, it was no. I don't think it was any more planned than most TV shows. Sure. They just pulled it off. Um, the planning in this show isn't necessarily in the transformation of Jimmy McGill into Saul Goodman. It's the various outs and off-ramps they built themselves when they were paving the highway. Right. So what you were alluding to, um, you know, about, okay, do we just have to, is this not working? Do we pump, do we just pump the gas as quickly as we can and get the Aaron, Aaron Paul cameo and get out of here? Or have we built a show that could sustain for a while as Jimmy McGill and, if you remember the very first moments of the premiere, they showed it begins with Saul and the Shuck. Yeah. It begins post Breaking Bad. So the thing that the show can always do, if and when it needs to, is it can um, pull the emergency release and become a sequel. I'm sure that that's not, not a AMC so that, can't wait for him to be working in a Cinnabon. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> I would have. First of all, the brand integration is strong with that it's one. True. That was, you know. What if, so, what if I, I told you I was going to make an like Alexander Payne movie set at a Cinnabon? <laughs> Yo, can I be real with you? Like, there were a lot of jokes this year about how the number one way to get on TV is to take an outlandish premise and then make them cop. So, like, Fox took a, a beloved, uh, very adult graphic novel called Lucifer in which the devil quits hell and starts working at a piano bar in Los Angeles. And they were like, babe, love it. Love all of it. But let me just riddle you one thing. <laughs> Could he also be with a cop? Could he solve crimes? So what I'm saying is... One other note, what if he were white? (laughs) And and a third note, what if he worked in a safe way? Like, my point is, take anything that you want that networks already love, that third heat, that special thoughts would be brand integration. Yeah, right. So seriously, though, like if if you could make someone be the head of CSI New Orleans by day, and then like, you know, a night manager of Best Buy, that would be the most popular show that they've ever walked through the door of CBS. Speaking of which, go to Best Buy for all your needs. <laughs> yeah. uh, we should wrap things up here by talking about the sort of central topic of our lives for the last couple of weeks, which is the actual sort of release of Life of Pablo, which may or may not be considered officially done now. I came in this morning and we were kind of talking about it, and then our, our buddy Sean Fantasy was just like, yeah, and they're still working on it. There's still going to be like a different version of it once it gets to whatever the next, you know, non-ethereal like in the ether ver- like version of it that's on title that people can't get but are getting apparently charged for. Yeah, like my feeling is that the the version of the album we have now is the one that's locked in title control room with Doug. Yeah, like Doug at this point is wearing his tie around his head like a bandana. 
of benzos and the 19 cups of coffee are now fully at war with each other. Um, it, it's dark. I feel like Doug is but like Brad Pitt at the beginning there, of Spy get... Game, where he's just like chewing gum and about to do like paddles on himself. Like, <laughs> I think that's exactly right. I think before the week is over, Brad Pitt will be like Mrs. Brad Pitt at the end of Seven. But <laughs> I think we're a little bit. I think I think that's getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Um, the last song on Life of Pablo is called it... "What's in the Box." <laughs> Here's... Here's what's been interesting. Here, we're at the moment now, and we've talked about this, I think, in relationship to other records or other things that we were really anticipating, where the anticipation and the theater of the anticipation can be almost as entertaining or as rewarding as the thing itself. And at a certain point, as you alluded to, maybe not yet. This still isn't a done deal. And maybe it'll never be. Maybe this is the beginning of the era of Greedo, of the Greedo Shot First album. Right. Like, that you can constantly be tinkering with it and changing it. Um, and I can't tell if Kanye is steering into it or crashing into it. Because when we were talking about this last week, and he did the, the Yeezy show, and the album then appeared to be nine tracks or ten tracks long. Yeah. And they, we were a little bit disappointed because we missed No Parties in L.A., and there were all these other great you know, collaborations that we had heard about, specifically with Andre 3000. And yet the one thing I've always trusted this dude for, and let me tell you, I don't... I, like, I wouldn't trust him with an open app on my phone, especially with those hot <laughs> Twitter fingers he's got right now. I know. But I've always trusted him in whatever the wildness of his vision is, communicating it in the best possible way. And so I was like, okay, well, Jesus, I prefer short albums, too. I prefer concise statements, because it's not like we're not going to hear the other songs eventually anyway. So I thought that it was surprising, but probably strong. And so now when we hear this version that suddenly balloons like 17 or 18 tracks with a max B on the, on the payphone from prison intermission, um, you can tell that it, it's a little bit sloppy. Now, I really like Jason Green's review of it in Pitchfork where he talked about that sloppiness and the role that it plays in the record, but there's some tracks on here that are just so next level and so thematically unified, and that's basically um, Ultralight Beam all the way through through Wool. Like, all those tracks feel of a piece, I think, because they were all created like two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and then there's the other stuff. Now, I don't want to live in a world where we don't have 30 hours. Because, in fact... I want to live in that song forever. I love that song and the way it makes me feel so much. Like, side note, some dude was telling me about this Korean movie called Afterlife. Have you seen that movie? No. Some dude was telling Apparently you about a, a Korean movie? You want to go, to, go into this anecdote a little yeah. bit deeper? And not really. I was waiting outside <laughs> trying to buy some easy boots. You were, um, you were running into the Mercer Art Center? A, <laughs> I was running out of it. Dog, you've seen this Korean movie? It's a movie that says you die, and then someone is just like, okay, so here are the tastes of your life. You can review them, but you have to pick one moment. I'm probably butchering this, but this is what I remember, because, you know, I was living living the second act of vinyl at the moment, at the right. time you were telling me this. But So th- this is a Korean of version of Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life. First of all, glad you mentioned that. I've always loved that movie. I've always wanted to try the sushi in his version of Heaven. But... You pick the moment in your life that you want to live in forever. And not that you live it like a loop, but the way you felt at that moment. You could just sort of dissipate into the emotional ether of that feeling. That's how, when the drums come in on 30 hours, that's what I want to live forever. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. But that's how I feel when the Sister the Nancy comes in on Famous. Me too. Yeah. When Sister Nancy, that is, that is the most glorious musical moment of this year, full stop, maybe since the Charlie Wilson break on Down 2. Right. Um, 
the album is full of stuff like that. And there's even, you know, the loathsome Chris Brown reaches those moments on waves. But those tracks don't necessarily fit with the concise statement that, that he almost, almost in spite of himself, managed to make. That's, it, that's, what I, that's my short-term takeaway of an album that I already love and totally in the tank for. So the rapping on, on Famous kind of reminds me very much of, of I'm Good Era Kanye, of just like uh, the teddy bear Kanye. And it made me sort of start to think of this record as a new version of his early mixtapes. Um, like get well soon and and I'm good and it, it also took me back to the time and I know other people have mentioned this like John mentioned John Caramonica mentioned this in the Times and and Jason mentioned this on Pitchfork where it's Kanye is like an amazing producer and I don't mean producer like he's a great yeah. beat maker or or anything in particular about the production cycle because Hudson Mohawk did work on this record and you know Mike Dean is playing a lot of instruments on this record and it, lots of people have lots of hands on these beats. But Kanye is an incredible producer in the traditional sense of the person who is in charge with the final product and making sure everybody is in their lane and all those lanes go towards the right on-ramp to heaven. And, yeah. and that's where he takes you. And when everything works out and he has Chance the Rapper, the dream Kirk Franklin and Kelly Price on a song, and you're like, how did nobody ever think to do that before? That is incredible. And the same thing happens with Famous where you're like, he just took the very, the most perfect part of what Rihanna can do and put it on a song. And it's gorgeous. Can you hear my daughter crying? I can, no? but it's okay. We can just, let's just wrap it up. No, it's, I, I, I want to finish. I just, it's like, worst nightmare of how this should work. Um, Dude, we can't hear her anymore. Okay. Um, did you watch? Did you watch them on Saturday Night Live? Yes. Did you see any of that? I, I thought that the moment um, the, the, the performance of Ultra Light Beam was my favorite thing of the last two weeks. I mean, Kanye related, and particularly in light of what you're talking about him as as an expert, next level producer. There's no question that he is an egomaniac. There's no question that he might be disturbed or as his, you know his once and hopefully future friend Rhymefest has been alluding to like maybe off his meds or I don't know but you cannot watch that and not be like and not just be moved by the joy he takes in collaboration right. and, from, and from building the stage that other people get to shine on so from the moment when he just walks away from his own incredible song and performance in Saturday Night Live and lets Chance by the way I would like to apologize to you Chance the Rapper in Chicago for doubting that dude because that verse makes me want to reinvestigate all of the Johnny Trombone projects. Yeah, you're like, Bob, really Bobby Saxophone? What is this? <laughs> Look, kid, you're going to be a star. Yeah, you just got to get a different name. <laughs> Listen to me. Sometimes you reach for the hot take and you get burned. Yeah. Okay? Like, that that was on me. That, I was wrong about that. But you watch that and you're just, it, it's just exhilarating. And I kind of always want pop music to give me that feeling where anything is possible, where the, the guy you think is just like one of the dudes who hangs out and like reads um, like Balmain catalogs for him. Oh, that's actually a 54-year-old elder bard wearing a white <laughs> denim jacket and singing two sentences. Like that is just straight up thrilling. So I guess the adventure is not over. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm sure that Yeezy seasons tend to run for a little bit longer than just an album. I mean, whether or not he'll take this on tour, what that tour will be like given the sort of... Um, you know, frankly, the state that he's in right now, uh, 
he is definitely like we joked. We didn't mean to joke, but I mean, like we were talking about like Kanye definitely feels a little bit um, untethered right now. And uh, yeah, and maybe the, that's all the, just the, like the, hype the, for the album. And he's just like this. I'm just going to say whatever comes into my mind to pump things up. Or maybe there's some other things at play there. But it'll be kind of fascinating to see how 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 much longer he can sustain this kind of like always on the, the three ring circus, you know, because it's it's draining. It's draining for anyone. I mean, there's other, I, I don't even mean this in the sense of his, like, of, of his mental chemistry, but there's something very Carrie Matheson about this. Yeah. He's last yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing about him, it was interesting that he was tweeting the thing He about probably being, like, has a cork board with a bunch of faces up it, and then all the strings lead back to Doug from Title. Oh, exactly. Well, because the strings are wrapped around <laughs> the fat dude's neck in the picture. Um, it was interesting, you know, you were tweeting about being $53 million in debt because when we were out with, with John Fantasy last week, we were just talking about the Kanye stuff and we were talking about questions we may have about him. And one of the questions that came up is, like, for real, though, like, how does this guy make money right. other than being married to a Kardashian? And, and I, I actually, you know, don't really care about looking at a 1099. But I, I am, I have to remark on the fact that, like, he does put the money where the mouth is. Yeah. Like, he made a video game about his mother climbing into heaven. You know, like, <laughs> he brought all those people onto the Saturday Night Live stage. Yeah. Like, and bought them matching outfits. That's what he feels is worth doing. There, There is a different world where Kanye, you know, is the executive producer of Empire and is making crazy money from just making beats of that or collaborating with, with, with Katy Perry or whomever. Because you can get hundreds of thousands of dollars just for walking into the studio. He's not doing that. He's paying those hundreds of thousands of dollars to like sister Nancy's relatives for taking one line from her thirty-year-old song and laying it over a Taylor Swift <laughs> and turning it into like you know? a, so, a chord progression. Yeah. It it it, it in just in terms of being a fan of, of pop culture and pop music, it is as good as it gets. Well, because this album is never going to be finished, we will never be finished talking about it. But we will probably have a watch re-up later this week to talk about the first episode of Better Call Saul, maybe to recap London Spy and do some recommendations. Uh, as always, you can subscribe to uh, the watch on the Channel 33 Podcast 3. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Andy, good to talk to you as always. I'll talk to you on Thursday, man. Great job, Bransky!